Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Professor Toby Walsh today. Toby is a leading researcher in artificial intelligence, a laureate fellow and Cynthia Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales and leads the Algorithmic Decision Theory Group at Data61. He was named by the Australian newspaper as a rock star of Australia's digital revolution. Toby, thanks so much for joining me today. Go on, Nikki. It's been a pleasure to join you. Thank you. In layman's terms, what does artificial intelligence, deep learning and machine learning mean? And what's the crossover into robotics? Uh, it's very difficult to say what artificial intelligence is. In fact, actually, uh, we sometimes joke artificial intelligence is all the things you can't yet get a computer to do. Uh, but broadly speaking, it's trying to get computers to do the things that when humans do them, they require intelligence. And so how does that connect into robotics? Well, a robot is a machine that perceives the world, reasons about the world, and acts in the world. And the first two, um, perceiving the world and reasoning about the world, require some artificial intelligence. Uh, so things like computer vision to be able to see the world, um, and then things like planning to be able to plan to solve particular goals in that world that you've perceived. Um, a special part of AI is machine learning. Um, our intelligence is things not just that we've programmed, but things that we've learned. When you were born, you couldn't read, you couldn't write, you couldn't do maths. Most of the things you can do today were things that you learned. So a good way to get machines, computers to do things that require intelligence is for them to learn. And so there's a part of artificial intelligence devoted to trying to get machines to do that. And a special flavor of machine learning is deep learning. Um, it's one that you hear about a lot today because many of the recent successes um, have been um, with deep learning, especially to, to get computers to see, to hear, um, to understand language. We're increasingly using deep learning, but it's not the only, it's worth pointing out, it's not the only flavor of machine learning. It's not the only part of, of AI that's had success. There's been um, a lot of success over many, many years using other AI techniques. AI is very much today um, a grab bag, a, a toolbox of different um, algorithms and tools that we put together to try and build intelligence into machines. And deep learning is one very vital component, especially for doing perception, but it's not the only component. And um, we've still got a long way to go to build machines with intelligence. And I suspect when we do in 40 or 50 years time or however long it takes, it won't be just deep learning. Uh, just like we don't have one type of neuron in our brains, um, we're probably gonna require other tools, other techniques, um, other types of machine learning combined with deep learning. In fact, even the, one of the fathers of, of deep learning, Jeff Hinton, has said, let's throw it away and start again because he understands perhaps better than anyone the limitations um, that there are with things like deep learning. It needs lots and lots of examples. It's um, it's um, where, it, where we have the data, it's perhaps often a very good technique, but equally there are lots of problems where it doesn't seem to be the, the right thing yet. So there are a lot of percentages quoted in the media of how many jobs are going to be lost to artificial intelligence and robotics. What's your prediction on this? <laughs> oh, well, most of the, probably all of the predictions are wrong. I mean, I think we can say with great certainty um, that these predictions, I think many of them can I think, be traced back to a a famous study that came out of the University of Oxford in, in 2013, uh, the Frey and Osborne report, 
that came up with this number that's always repeated. 47% of jobs in the United States are at risk of automation in the next two decades. A similar study was done by some colleagues of mine for Australia, came out with a very similar number, 45% of jobs in Australia at risk of automation. Um, I think there was one uncertainty is we have absolutely no idea, certainly not down to single digit accuracy, how many jobs are at risk. Uh, it's, it's certain that, that some jobs will, will disappear. That's always been the history of technology. I think the, the big uncertainty is we have no idea how many new jobs will be created. Um, those studies also all typically tend to ignore changing demographics. Um, we're all living longer and spending more time being retired. Um, so um, maybe, maybe we'll work uh, less. Um, there's actually some interesting studies going on in New Zealand uh, the United Kingdom. A number of companies are trialing working four days of the week instead of the five. Um, and it's it, it's an interesting discovery that they're making, or two interesting discoveries. First of all, people are just as productive in four days of work as they were in five, so you can pay them just as much. And secondly, and complete, again, completely unsurprisingly, um, people, people are um, uh, happier. Could, 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 you, could you be surprised that, that um, if people spend more time with their families, more time on holiday, more time in their communities and doing all the other things in their lives, that, they're, uh, that they turn out to be happier. So uh, we don't know. I mean, it's certainly an issue we should give serious thought to um, and we should need to think about how we, how, especially now um, post-COVID or um, in COVID or whatever time we call ourselves in, we really do have to think about um, how the economy is going to change and adapt and technology um, is a really significant and important component of that. Um, one, one important lesson we do have from history is that um, these sorts of shocks and crises are ones that do precipitate big ch economic changes. Um, we, we've seen in, in past crises that was a significant impetus for companies to invest in automation. Um, and we're likely to see that again. Um, and so there will be a significant number of jobs that will get replaced as we come out of COVID. Um, and then I think, the, so the, I think the, perhaps the more important question we should be asking is how do we ensure that those people whose jobs get replaced um, have useful employment, have, have income, can live um, lives? Um, and that's, I think, you know, that I think is a really interesting, really challenging conversation. And it's one that um, whilst people like myself, technologists, can inform the conversation as to well, how quickly are the machines going to be able to do these particular tasks, it's equally a conversation that needs to be had by all of society. You need economists and political scientists and, and the people involved, the people whose jobs are going to be at risk, who need to be engaged in these conversations. You have to think carefully through, well, what sort of society is it that we want it to be? Um, and, and I think it's really important is we can learn from history. We can look back at, at, past, at past changes like this. And we have one very good precedent here. That was the first industrial revolution one where we stopped working out in the fields and started working in factories and offices and to realize that well actually ultimately that turned out to be a very good thing we live better quality lives today life expectancy even in a country like australia has nearly doubled um, in the in the hundred years since the or so since the industrial revolution um, we do live um, much better quality lives um, and we made sure that the benefits were spread around and the, the people who were put out of work in the fields uh, were found gainful employment in factories and offices. 
we, but it's also worth remembering we made some pretty significant structural changes to society to enable that. It didn't happen by just allowing the revolution, the industrial revolution to happen. And there were significant, um, it was a significantly bumpy road in the process. We went through the Great Depression. Uh, we, we went, we introduced um, the welfare state in most countries to support people. So when they were made unemployed, that they weren't um, in the poorhouse. We introduced universal education so people were educated for those new jobs. Um, so we made some pretty significant changes to our, the way we ran our society to enable all of us to, to prosper. Um, and I think that's um, a really valuable lesson to take from history and one that we should think about when we're thinking about, well, how do we ensure that technologies like robotics and AI, um, the benefits are spread around and that we come out of um, that um, fourth industrial revolution so that all of us share the benefits. And actually, I think there's, if there's one good thing that's come out of the pandemic um, is a realization that we can think quite differently, that we can actually, we actually are paying people uh, a form of universal basic in income now. It's called JobKeeper. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, we've realized that, that that is actually possible, that that may actually be, be desirable, that, um, that um, we, we do need to perhaps cushion people from these changes and support them through these. Um, and we can do some quite radical things, things that we thought were entirely economically or politically um, infeasible, unacceptable. And before, we've been doing now for months um, and realizing that we can, actually, we can actually do that. So I think that's, if there's one positive lesson that's come out of this, of, of this pandemic, I think is, is the realization that we can rethink the way that we run our society, that we can, that we can afford actually to make some significant investments in people and that they're worth doing to save lives, to, to, to build the prosperity and to share that wealth around. Um, and so I think this is, a, this is an incredibly important conversation, um, but one that all of us society should be having, not just technologists like you and me. So speaking of which, your job, you've described it as third. You're a professor, um, you field the media, you do a lot of interviews, and then you talk to government officials. So um, how regularly do you get together with governments? You talk to them about artificial intelligence, robotics. I mean, how prevalent is it on their, um, their horizon that they go, this is actually something that should be taken quite seriously? Well, it, it, it is definitely um, a flavour of the month or flavour of the hopefully flavor of the decade i hope i hope it isn't a just a flash in the pan but um it's it's, it's fascinating because i've spent my whole life working in the field ever since ever since i was a young boy reading too much science fiction dreaming about building artificial intelligence and robotics um, and then spent the last 30 or plus years um studying the field and, and working in the field and for most of that time no one cared it, it really was the care, case that we were an obscure academic discipline um, and no one really cared, and um, for good reason, because actually for most of those 30 years, the last 30 years, um, AI wasn't a significant component of people's lives. We weren't making a significant economic difference to people's lives. But in the last decade, that really has changed, and certainly in the last half a dozen years, it, it really has changed. And um, if you look at the, you know, the five um, most valuable companies in the world today, all tech companies, most of them depending heavily on artificial intelligence to drive their businesses um, and it is um, becoming a really significant component and um, many people are waking up to the the fact that this is going to uh, have a real impact not just on our economic activities but but equally i think we're discovering it, it it's touching many aspects of our lives it's, it touches 
um, our political debates. Um, you only have to look at the uses and misuses of Twitter and social media um, and the effect that that's having on political debates in the US and, and elsewhere. Um, and it's, it, it's hard to think really of an aspect of our lives that it isn't going to touch. Um, um, and therefore, um, we really do have to think very carefully about how do we get the good with, with, without the bad? Because you know, like any technology, there are good things that can come from it and bad things that come from it. Um, the same technologies can be used or misused. We see um, you know, computer vision as an example being used to give robot sight, being used to build self-driving cars. That's going to be a fantastic benefit. I mean, the, a thousand road casualties, uh, road deaths every year in Australia, they will go to almost zero once we have autonomous cars. Um, fantastic positive bef benefits to society. People, um, the elderly, um, who are too old to drive now, the young are too young to drive, um, people um, with disabilities, they will be given the mobility that the rest of us, uh, the driving people, um, take for granted. So immense positive benefits that will come from that technology, computer vision. But equally, we already see immense harms being done by that same technology, a persecution of the Uyghurs in China. Uh, we see um, a surveillance state being erected, um, not just in totalitarian regimes, but even here in Australia, you see worrying trends, you see um, the government um, building a national database. Anyone, anyone listening who's got a passport or a driving license, your photograph, your biometrics are going to be included in that database and the risks that that may pose to our lives. And the, the, you know, we've certainly authors like um, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley have, have warned us about um, the dangers that we, we may end up in if we're not careful. Um, so I think these are really important conversations and it's, it's, it's gratifying um, to the politicians um, are waking up to, to have these conversations. And I have found myself talking to a remarkable number of them and trying to inform those conversations. I think it's um, you know, incredibly important responsibility as someone who's been working with the technology to ensure that we take responsible decisions and we try and take them in advance of the damage being done by the technology. And it's the, the problem often is that we um we don't um we don't do these things in advance of the harms being done and there's plentiful goods and equally plentiful harms that will happen um and equally i think you know what's certainly happened in the last couple of years there's increasing realization that there was a time where i think people thought that you couldn't and you shouldn't regulate these sorts of spaces that these were technologies that you would you would stifle innovation you would hold back and the wonders of these technologies if you did try to regulate. Uh, and maybe that was true a while back, but, but I think now we're realizing um, that you can and you should. That um, you, there was, a, I think, a, a belief that you couldn't because the, somehow the digital space was separate than the real world, the physical world. It was harder or if, if not impossible to regulate. I think there's increasing realization that it is entirely possible to, to regulate. Um, and equally, it's actually desirable that there will be harms committed if we're not careful um, and that um, we do need um, su suitable regulation. And we see that, especially within Europe. I think actually Europe, more than any other region, is leading the way. We see things like the GDPR, the data protection regulation, as a, as a fine example. But equally, we see the Australian government um, waking up to its responsibilities. We saw um, after the terrible, um, terrible incident that happened in Christchurch, uh, the Australian government was was one of the first, actually, to 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 regulate social media, to hold um, the directors of those companies um, criminally liable if they don't take down 
um, vile content that is actually corrupting our society um, quickly enough. Um, and we also see, um, you know, the other important part of that is the conversation about, about distribution of the wealth. Uh, we're one of two countries in the world that has a Google tax. So if, if these large tech companies rearrange their business affairs to avoid paying uh, even a modicum of tax, then there is a special tax waiting for them. Yeah, I suppose I think there's a groundswell now. Have you heard of the movie The Social Dilemma? Yes. Um, have yeah, you watched it? I have watched The Social Dilemma. It, it, I mean, it's it's an interesting movie. Um, it, it's, it was trending on on Netflix um, very recently, um, and I, a lot of people have been have have I think have been woken up to some of the concerns. These are messages, though, that many of us um, have been saying for many years. Yeah. Um, it's, I, mean, I think it's good to see that it gets into the mainstream. Um, I mean, there's certainly criticisms to be made of the, of, of the documentary. Um, it's not, it doesn't have a very diverse set of people um, raising the claims, mostly white male tech people who, who are perhaps more than any responsible for the, many of the harms that they've been talking about. So um, the movie could have done a better job, more diverse job, more inclusive job. Um, but um, anything like that, that, that raises people's awareness I think is actually really important to actually get um, everyone having being engaged in this conversation. Well, I think the latest congressional hearing in the United States with uh, Google and uh, Microsoft and Facebook, certainly it seems to have a bit of more bite to it. Um, I was reading an article this morning that the assumption that these uh, congressmen don't know what they're talking about is in fact grossly inaccurate and they, they're getting, they all agree that the four have got far too much power. Um, I think they're just not in agreement on how they're going to tackle it to, to break them up. Yes, I mean, it's, it's very clear. Um, the comparisons being made, I, th I think, are, are very valid ones. The comparisons is that we've never seen anything like this since the time of, of the robber barons, the, the oil barons, oil barons, the, the Rockefellers um, and the uh, Carnegie's and the Mellons of the time. Um, we've never seen such a concentration of, of power and wealth in a small number of, uh, of hands before. Um, and we've always, I mean, I think that's the, the sad lesson of neoliberal economics for the last 20 or 30 years is that we've discovered that, that all markets do need regulation, that the free market, um, has great benefits, but even, but every market needs rules under which to be to be run. Otherwise, it will run to excess, and we are seeing some of that excess today. Um, and actually, uh, in private, I will talk. I didn't know lots of people who work in these companies, and many of them are thoughtful, caring, responsible people. And you will talk to them, and certainly in private, and they will say to you that actually, in many cases, they would welcome some more regulation. At the, the moment, it is too much of a wild west. It is a a race to the bottom and that they would actually like a floor to be put on things that there are some things they would prefer not to do but they're just doing it because otherwise their competitors will and if yeah. it were regulated so they didn't have to so that there were there were you know minimum behaviors were, were, were mandated by law um, then they could behave in, in more responsible more equitable ways I think part of the problem in America, as I understand it, is that the watchdog um, organisations don't have enough might to swipe these people and really find them and really put punitive measures. You know, they can make recommendations, but um, it, it actually needs to be enforced. Yes, that's an interesting, interesting observation. Uh, increasingly, I mean, you see the regulators, both in the US and Europe, um, trying to exert more might. You see, you see billion dollar fines. Mm. 
Um, and, and there's always the discussion then, you know, well, how big do the fines have to be before they sit up and pay attention? Uh, I think the other problem is that, is that antitrust regulation, certainly in the United States, has focused almost exclusively on competitiveness. Um, as to and in particular in terms of whether the consumer is is paying a competitive price or not, and that um, really isn't the right lens to be looking at this problem in, uh, because if we're talking about services that are in some sense given away for free, then of course you're competitive because you know because well the person isn't paying, but of course we are paying mm. um, because in many cases we are the product um, and it's the advertiser it's the other person in the other side of the market that is paying but that's not one that's not what we see as the consumer um, and so this very narrow lens that antitrust has looked at um, purely in in very immediate competitive terms in terms of prices is one i think that that we're actually discovering is too is is too narrow a focus and we have to look at the broader uh, market in which these sits and the broader um, terms of competition and that ultimately we are I think actually we're, we're running into a risk that we will stifle innovation that we've seen a remarkable 20 30 years of innovation ever since the invention of the internet and um, that um, but now actually we're seeing a narrowing of that that um, power has been concentrated into the hands of a few it's impossible to compete yeah and that's not a, yeah that's not a good situation for anyone to be in um, and so it will it will be necessary to rein them in Mm. Um, and whether that requires breaking them into pieces, whether that requires a laws that you know that, tell, that regulate that you can't be both seller and the marketplace that that, mm. that gives you too privileged a position um, and too easy for you to abuse the, the market. Well, we're in an interesting time just before the U.S. elections now. What's going to be going on on Facebook? I think one of Donald Trump's tweets were already removed because it was factually incorrect and. Um, yeah, I, I think the next four weeks are going to be interesting. Well, Facebook, Facebook is a very interesting idea. Um, and um, I cannot understand why Facebook hasn't voluntarily, um, and if it isn't going to do voluntarily, hasn't been required by law to stop selling micro-targeted political adverts. Mm. Twitter's decided to do the honourable, responsible thing, get out of that market. Um, I can't understand why why Facebook wants to pervert democracy by continuing to allow that to happen. Um, you'd think that they can earn enough money otherwise. Mm. Um, and, and that um, the, it is just so corrosive, the idea that we have with data, you can, you can manipulate how people will vote. And it's very clear that that is happening. Mm. Um, and that is not actually, it doesn't seem to be um, aiding our democratic process. No. At the end of the day, we want the people with the most democratic support, mm -hmm. with the best ideas to be elected. We don't want the people with the most data and the best algorithms that can manipulate how people vote. And that's what, that's what we're running into. And so I, I can't understand why, um, first of all, Facebook haven't realized it's in their own interest to get out of this market and so to stop corrupting the political process by doing it. And secondly, why politicians haven't realized that we should just regulate it. We have, we have incredibly strict rules in most countries, in, in Australia certainly, and in the United States, that prohibit, that limit the amount of money you can spend on TV adverts. Yeah. So we realize this, this media, uh, TV in particular, is a powerful way to influence how people want to vote. And we don't want um, the TV moguls to be in charge of that, or the people who have the deepest pockets. Yeah. We do want the democratic process to run its proper course. And so we've, we've regulated that from very early days. Well, now we have an even more powerful media, it's called social media, and yet we seem to have far fewer rules. 
Um, and it's far cheaper, far more effective means of targeting people and not necessarily with truths. And that's the other thing that always amazes me, that we have very strict rules about, about selling soap powder. You can't tell people lies about the quality of your social soap powder. You've got to tell them the truth about how it works and its effectiveness and how it compares to other soap powders. But we allow people to say anything, any untruths, when it comes on social, to, on social uh, media, go for social it. Social media, when it comes to political adverts. So how, how can we allow that? I mean, how, why do we not insist that, that people say the truth? Yeah. Yeah, or the, and the severe punitive damages when you found out to be uh, sprouting a lot of nonsense. Yes. It's, it's little known that, that, that not only is Facebook um, selling these adverts, but they're an incredibly active player. Mm. So um, there was a BBC documentary which actually goes to the uh, offices that Cambridge Analytica had in Tucson, Arizona during the midterm elections where they famously, famously manipulated. Um, and the reporter gets the ex-Cambridge Analytica employee to point at the desks of the Facebook employees that were embedded in Cambridge Analytica's offices. They had two of their employees working full-time for Cambridge Analytica, helping them buy adverts. So the fact that the Facebook executives fronted up to Congress and expressed surprise what was going on when they had their employees embedded that's um, the biggest surprise of all. The biggest surprise of all. They were their best uh, buying customer during the midterm elections of, of any people. They Not only did um, um, Facebook have employees, the Republican Party had employees embedded in the Cambridge Analytical offices. So um, they were very complicit in what was going on. And so how we allow this to continue, and it's going to, again, it's, it's being used for the, for the upcoming, in the upcoming presidential elections and in elections um, we've seen, unfortunately, in other elections around the world, the Brexit referendum, um, in many other elections. So on a personal note, you, you have a 10 or 11-year-old daughter. Is she allowed to have a Facebook account? <laughs> no, she's definitely not allowed to have a Facebook account. Oh, go, Toby. I love that. <laughs> no, we, I, she doesn't have a Twitter account. She doesn't have a Facebook account. Um, she's, she's allowed to watch TikToks, but, but that's all. Good, under supervision. <laughs> under supervision, yes. Um, no, I mean, it's, it is worrying. I think, that, you know, ultimately we've, we've, we're skirting around the, this really dangerous idea. Um, and we see this in the misuse of social media for politics, but we also see it um, in the way that, that it's changing our youth, is that the human brain can be hacked. Mm. And we yeah. can, and we, we like to think that we're of independent thought, but we're not. It's easy enough, especially um, with these tools, machine learning tools, um, to, to hack uh, what people do and what they think, um, what they buy, who they vote for. And that's incredibly dangerous, an incredibly yeah. dangerous tool in the wrong hands. Or even in the right hands, it's an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah. Um, and and you, you, you could use it for good. You can use it to, to try and encourage people to live healthier lives and to, to look after themselves and to live happier lives. But equally, we're also seeing it being misused. Uh, yeah. um, and that is incredibly dangerous idea, the idea that human brains can be hacked and that this is the perfect tool to do it with. Addiction. That's it. Yeah. it, what we get addicted to. So in 2015, you wrote an open letter to the United Nations asking them to ban killer robots. Tell us about this and, and where is it today? So I'm a bit of an accidental activist. I never really sat down and said, look, I really sh should um, become very politic 
political in this. I need, I need to, um, you know, get my colleagues, other researchers in AI and robotics, um, uh, activate here. Uh, um, but um, I found myself in a position of, of being able to do something about this. And uh, at back half a dozen years ago, I started reading about where we were going, what was happening in, in robotics, what was happening in AI uh, with the military, and realizing that we were going down a potentially very dangerous path of giving over the decision to machines, to, to robots, as to who lives and who dies. Having what we call fully autonomous weapons, or as the media like to call them, killer robots, but, but weapons where the, the identification, the selection, and the targeting is done without any humans in the loop. And, and we warned about this in this open letter that we wrote to the United Nations in 2015 that got um, lots of my colleagues uh, signed this letter. When we released the letter, it had 2,000 signatures. Um, by now, it's, it's had tens of thousands of signatures, which is a significant chunk of the community have actually now signed this letter. Um, but uh, we warned that there would be an arms race. We warned that, that, that you know, these technologies were going to be leaking out of the research laboratory um, and into deployment. And that's already happening. Unfortunately, beginning of this year, we saw on the Turkish-Syrian border, uh, fully autonomous drones being deployed by the Turkish military that use face recognition to identify targets. The same sorts of face recognition that's in your mobile phone is being used to decide who to kill on the ground. And we're making, and no doubt, you know, it will be making the same sorts of mistakes that that software makes in your mobile phone. We, we, we can't make face recognition software. Um, that is that good today. I was um, actually reading a report put together by the um, National Standards Board in the United States. They tested um, 16 companies, 16 of the main commercial suppliers of face recognition software. They, test, they tested the accuracy of that software in the world with, with, um, with images, not ones where you've got people looking face on at the camera, but the sorts of images you would get in the wild. And they found that some of the software was 90% inaccurate. Mm. Um, and so to think that we'd be arming weapons, making kamikaze drones, um, that would be able to make those sorts of decisions. So um, I, I was pleased to say that, th this, that our warning was picked up. Um, I was amazed to, to be invited to the United Nations to speak on the topic. I've spoken actually now at the United Nations half a dozen times. Um, there is uh, an ongoing campaign um, to it's called the campaign to stop killer robots there's a hundred ngos that bring together organizations like human rights watch that have been campaigning vigorously on this matter and uh today 30 nations at the united nations have called for a preemptive ban that's that's not a majority um and it's not unanimity many decisions in the un have to be made by unanimity so we've still got a way to go before 200 plus such nations have signed up um, Australia, I'm sad to say, is not one of those nations. Uh, neither it. is the United States, neither is the United Kingdom, neither is Israel, neither is Russia, many of the major players developing these technologies. Um, but but um, many nations have, 30 nations have, including the African Union, including the European Parliament, mm. including a number of European nations, in particular um, Austria was the first European nation to call. Um, but many nations, especially, interestingly, um, in the sorts of places, I think, that where we'll see these weapons being deployed, the very first nation to actually call for a preemptive ban was Pakistan, a nation that's already seen um, drones. They, they, those are semi-autonomous. There's still a human in the loop. But drones being used on their, above, their, above their soil. Um, so Pakistan, I think, perhaps a nation that 
appreciates the risk and the challenges more than any was the first nation to call for a preemptive ban. Um, many other nations in Africa and South America have also called for a ban. So we still have a long way to go. The UN was discussing this topic again last week. They're due um, slated again to, to continue their talks next month in November. So um, I'm hopeful that we can continue to, to pressurize uh, the discussions and ultimately I hope that we'll end up with some form of regulation. Many technologies have been regulated. We've regulated chemical weapons, biological weapons, um, cluster munitions, blinding lasers. There's lots of things that we've decided were not good ways to fight wars. We've got plentiful ways to fight wars. We don't need more ways to fight wars. We've got plentiful deterrence um, from people who want to do harm. Um, and so there are a bunch of technologies uh, that we have regulated, and I hope we will decide that this is one that will, certainly the public's opinion, Ipsos surveys show that the public is, supports the idea that we should regulate these technologies. Um, and so I very much hope that we will, um, in the near future, we will actually be able to get the United Nations um, to, to formally ban the use of, of fully autonomous weapons where there is no human involved in the decision-making. So is that letter still available for anyone to sign? If anyone in yes, our, in you, can our go to the, you can go to the Future of Life, uh, Future Humanities uh, website, just type in um, lethal autonomous weapons letter and you'll, you can add your name uh, to the letter if you like. There's also a pledge to pledge not to work on such technologies. I'll put that in our, in our notes for today. So now our children and our future. Let's talk Australia. Are we preparing our kids for the future that they're going to be um, living in one day? <laughs> if I say to you in charge of the education system, what, what would you do? That's a great, great question, a really important question. Um, and um, I have actually been spending um, a bit of time in the last couple of years working with the Department of Education here in New South Wales, helping, helping them think about these questions. I think it's incredibly important. I was talking to the secretary of the department about this and he said, look, the kids entering my kindergarten today, they'll spend most of their lives working in the second half of this century, post 2050. They'll be working with technologies that no one has invented yet. How can we possibly prepare them for that sort of future? And I think that, that that's an incredibly important conversation to think about, um, to think about, well, what are the appropriate skills? Um, and, and they're not just about work skills. I mean, a lot of the conversations I was having with, with the department was about, well, what are the jobs of the future going to look? And I think that's an incredibly important conversation. And the jobs of the future will not necessarily look like the jobs of today. Actually, I think, interesting enough, they'll look more like the jobs of yesterday. They'll be more of the traditional things that we used to do. Um, but, but equally, education isn't just about jobs. Education is about preparing us to be good citizens, preparing us to have happy lives, preparing us to, to, to contribute to society in the broadest way. And if the robots are taking the sweat and doing much of the work, uh, you know, I like to always remind people work is the only truly obscene four-letter word. Uh, if, so if robots are doing all the work, we should be celebrating that and, and realizing, well, now we've got time to do the finer things in life um, and edu education should prepare us for those sorts of, those sorts of activities. So, um, you know, there are lots of things I think we should be teaching people. Um, the, uh, the secretary did ask me, he said, if there are, if, if there are only um, three or four things that we could teach in school, what would they be, Toby? I said, well, actually, well, that's quite easy. If it's only three or four, um, it's quite easy. You've got to teach people 
um, English. You've got, you've got to be able to um, be able to speak and write in our society today to contribute um, and, and, and to be able to acquire more knowledge. So you've got to teach them English. You've got to teach them maths. Um, they've got to be numerate um, because, because otherwise you won't understand anything to do with technology. Um, and so I've, I've got left with one third, um, one or two more options. And so in the, the final two options, uh, the, second, the third one will be philosophy. Mm -hmm. Because philosophy is about living the good life, and it also teaches you how to how to understand arguments um, and, and 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 debate. Um, and so I'm left one last skill with my fourth option, um, and that's easy again: comedy. Teach them stand-up comedy. <laughs> that will give them all the other things they need in life. That will that will teach them, you know, um, how to perform, uh, how to stand up in front of an audience of people. Uh, to teach them everything they need to know about human psychology. Um, so pretty much all the other skills I reckon you can get from teaching them stand-up comedy. Listen, I think if you've got a good sense of humour, you could just about navigate through oh, yes. the and most we'll awful a, things in life. Like hopefully it will give them a good sense of humour. Right? Yeah, just you, you have to be able to laugh. I mean, how are we getting through yeah. COVID is with just a good dose of, listen, this too will pass and, you know, you just have to laugh about it at some point. Yes. But, but, but I think actually that you know, behind that, behind that um, you can actually see what, what are the important skills. Um, so there are technical skills. Obviously, if you're technically minded, you could be someone inventing the future. There's probably a good future in inventing the future. Um, equally, I understand you know, not, not all people are geeks like you or me, maybe. So, um, but, the, but, but equally, there's lots of skills that, where we need people skills. Um, you know, to be a CEO, I'm told the best skills are your emotional intelligence, not your technical yeah. background. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be plentiful um, jobs for people um, that have those people skills. We're going to much prefer interacting with people than with, than with robots. Um, and we're going to much prefer. Um, and, and, and robots have very limited emotional and social intelligence. So I think and people skills, again, is a, is a very important um, area. Um, and then the, the third one is the is the area of creativity so the artistic and the artisan yeah. machines aren't very creative i don't think we're going to value the things that machines create as much as we value the things that humans make um and um hopefully if the machines are taking the sweat we'll be have more time to do those more creative things and interesting enough you can already see that you can already see that happening and if you look at hipster culture you see increasing value being put on those things you know making artisan bread or or you know um, homemade cheese or whatever it happens to be yeah and we're seeing increasing value and if we believe economists those things that are made by the human hand will be scarer um, and will be more expensive and more valuable those things that are mass produced made by robots will be cheaper the cost of living will come down immensely it'll be much easier to live much cheaper to live so perhaps we'll have to actually even work less um, to be able to afford to live um, and then we'll have more time to, to spend on those things. So, so um, those are the things I think that we, we should be teaching. So the, the interesting thing is, it isn't just about teaching people programming. In fact, that's the dirty secret. Uh, machine learning is computers learning how to program themselves. Yeah. And we'll need perhaps less and less people doing programming as we move forwards. And we'll need more and more time for people to be more and more human, yeah. doing the human-focused things. And so there's an interesting arc, I think, you know, where actually we go back to many of the professions that we used to do. Um, you know, I always joke that the, the newest job on the planet being an Uber driver, shortest lived job on the planet, because we'll have 
self-driving Ubers. Uber's trying to build them already. Um, that will be far cheaper, um, far safer. Um, so we'll, we'll, humans won't be driving, being paid to be driving for much longer. So that's the you know, newest job on the planet, shortest lived job on the planet. Oldest job on the planet, being a carpenter, one of the oldest jobs on the planet. I'm sure um, you know, human, human carpentry is the thing that we're going to be valuing and paying for much more uh, moving forward. So um, it's interesting to think we'll actually probably go back to some of those things that we used to do before we automated them. Yeah, going forward, going back, interesting uh, concept. So the adoption rate in Australia with robotics, like we, we ranked number 23 in the world in terms of our um, industrial robots. Um, for every 10,000 people, there are 80 robots in Australia. South Korea has got 710 in the world. The average is 85. How do you think our, our rate of adoption of robotics in Australia is going to affect us going forward? It's, it's going to be, of course, be absolutely critical that we actually um, up our rate of adoption. Uh, I think the numbers hide um, the fact that, that um, it's very spotty. There are some areas where we are world leading. I mean, in, in, in mining, for example, um, we have you know, some of the most automated port, uh, mines um, on the planet. And if we hadn't have done that, um, we wouldn't have actually been able to keep some of those mines competitive, the way that raw commodity prices have, have been plummeting in various sectors um, and our high wage costs. We wouldn't have been able to, to, to keep um, digging some of that stuff out. Uh, again, uh, some other areas uh, that we're world leading are ports. We have some of the most automated ports. That used to be a, a significant bottleneck, a significant uh, break on our economy. Um, but we now have some of the most um, automated um, ports on the planet. I mean, of course, that's not been very good if you've been a stevedore and uh, those jobs have largely disappeared. Um, but that's been very good for our, our overall e economy. Um, and we see some areas now. So, for example, whenever you hear a new warehouse being opened, whether it's Amazon or Woolworths, invariably it's, it's a robotic and automated warehouse that's now being opened. So we, um, we are famous for being quick adopters. We adopted um, smartphones quicker than almost any country on the planet. So I'm hopeful that whilst in many sectors, manufacturing in particular, we're way behind in terms of adopting robotics, we will realize that it's in our in best interest with our high wages um, to invest in these areas and, and, and pick up our game like uh, we have in mining, like we have in our ports, um, because it's going to be absolutely necessary because we're not, we're never going to be able to compete with our low cost neighbors. We have high wage costs. And uh, we don't, we have, you know, significant barriers like the curse of distance um, and a very spread out um, um, uh, population centers that mean that we will not be competitive unless we embrace um, uh, robotics uh, and other forms of automation. In terms of um, ethical frameworks around robotics, so, you know, if you talk about killer robotics, what's being done in Australia to um, develop this and what's happening worldwide? So Australia has, the government did um, have an, an ethics framework. Uh, in fact, I have to admit responsibility. I was, I was part of the panel that helped draw that out with Data61. Um, and it's similar to, to many of the frameworks that you'll see other countries and other organizations have, um, have, have drawn out. Um, what, I, what I think is really important is, is, that, um, is how you turn these frameworks into practice. So we're realizing it's, it's all very good having um, these fine statements and principles, but what is challenging is how you turn that into practice. Um, and that requires 
there's not one silver bullet here. It requires many things. It requires education. Uh, that starts with um, education of, of you know, people who work in the field, uh, people who work in businesses. Um, it also requires um, norms. Um, so I, I've, I've been doing stuff with ISO and the standards bodies, looking at, at, at you know, how we, and, and IEEE on, on how we can draw up standards, that the uh, best practices that, that organizations can follow. Um, right through to, to hard law. We actually need various places where we're going to need regulation that, will, that the consumer needs to be protected um, because it's not, it's not reasonable to expect everyone to be an expert on AI and robotics and ethical principles. Um, just like you don't have to be an expert on water um, and water preservation when you go and buy a washing machine. You just to say, is it a five-star washing machine? That's yeah, you, 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 you just know, need to know someone's... <laughs> Right. You, you need to know someone's been doing the homework behind exactly. it. This is a good decision. And so equally, we need those norms and standards and, and rules so that, you know, when you go and buy yourself a home smart speaker or whatever, or a robotic vacuum cleaner or whatever it happens to be, you say, is it a five star one? They say, yes, it is. You say, okay, I can confidently buy that then. No. So COVID's actually now interesting. You've touched on JobKeeper, which brings me to my next question, a basic income, Bill Gates and Elon Musk, all the likes of proponents of, you know, as we increase our robotic uptake, there should be a basic income for everyone. What do you think of that? I think it's an interesting conversation. We don't know the answer. No one's really done a proper experiment with using universal basic income. There have been a, a few trials in California, mm. Canada, and, and some Scandinavian countries looking at them. Um, and those trials are promising. Um, they find that, that people don't just sit around and do nothing. Actually, it encourages, it allows people, enables people to start businesses, enables people to go off and, and, and re-educate themselves uh, and achieve things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve, that, that people do find purpose. And purpose is not given just by the job and the wage that you happen to be earning to us. Um, but equally, um, we, you know, we don't know... Um, how exactly the details will work out. Uh, There's, you know, incredible, challenging economic questions. Uh, you know, I did some maths in my latest book. If you take a decent um, annual income, say $20,000, $30,000 a year, US dollars a year. Um, so, you know, not, not, a, not a huge great income, but just one you could just imagine surviving on. Multiply that by the working population of, of the United States. Uh, you get up to, I'm trying to remember the numbers, I'll probably get this wrong, it's like 50 trillion or something. It was exactly the US federal budget, almost to the dollar. Okay. Um, so that tells you, I mean, interesting things about that. So that tells you, well, it's affordable. It is exactly what the US spends in its budget today. Mm. Um, but, of course, the US federal budget has already consumed providing healthcare, education, uh, a military, and all the other things, roads and all the other things. That you need to have as a, as a society. So um, it's, it shows the, the, the size, scale of the challenge if you're, going to, if you're going to start giving people income, especially if it's universal, at that sort of scale that you're looking at, you know, essentially a doubling of, of, of the tax base to be able to afford that. Well, how are you going to double the tax base to afford that? So there's significant questions about how you do that. Um, but I think, you know, uh, as we remarked, I mean, COVID, I think, is a good example of how we realized that you can do that if you want. I mean, okay, JobKeeper is only a temporary fix, but we are doing that. We are giving yeah. people um, essentially universal basic income. Uh, and I also like to remind people, we actually, we, it isn't just in COVID times that we've been doing that. We've been doing that for, for the best part of 100 years. Mm. 
that if you are a citizen of, of Australia, you get given um, services today that are worth thousands of dollars every year. Mm. You get Medicare, you get an education. Uh, that costs thousands of dollars every year to give those people those things. Obviously, that, that's not in the form of a, of a check. Um, some, some people think it's somewhat much more radical to give people those things in the forms of a check, but we have implicitly been giving people things of value, uh, values put in thousands of dollars every, every year just for being citizens, no questions asked. Yeah, um, and so in, yeah, bettering their lives if they take up the challenge to actually yeah. step into it and, and do something with it. And one of the greatest, one of the best investments a country can make is, for example, education. Uh, early education, fantastic investment in your future. Um, secondary education, again, a fantastic investment in the future wealth of your, of your, of your country. Higher education as well. Um, unfortunately, although, I mean, I certainly with higher education, we're seeing that you know, people increasingly being priced out of that market. And that is, you know, if you look at what is the greatest leveler in our society, the greatest enabler of social mobility, it is education at all levels. Yeah. Um, touching on your book, you've authored quite a few. Tell us about your, your latest one. Yes, the latest book's called 2062. Yeah. Subtitle is The World the Day I Made. Um, I probably should explain why it's called 2062. Um, I, well, I was actually, funny enough, I was, I was giving a talk at the library in North Sydney and the old lady, an old lady came up to me and said to me, she said, your book's nothing about my postcode. <laughs> Did you say no? Indeed not. <laughs> I said yes. I've got you here under false pretenses. Nothing to do with 2062, the postcode in, in North Sydney. Yeah. To do with the years 2062. So I surveyed 300 of my colleagues, other experts in AI, and 2062 was the median year in which they said um, computers would be as smart as humans. Now I should say there was huge variance in their answers. Um, None of them said, though, it was going to take less than five or 10 years. There's still a long way to go. But equally, most of them didn't say it was going to take more than 100 or 200 years. Well, 8% of them said it was never. But 92% of them said it was going to happen in the next 50 or 100 years. And the median answer was 2062. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, there's another nice coda to the story, which is that when I finished the book, and it was actually with the printers, too late to change things. Um, the um, well, when I first my first book I gave to the publishers, I was quite surprised they changed the title. So, when I wrote the second book, um, I was determined that I was going to choose the title this time. So, every chapter begins in 2062. <laughs> when I gave them the book, I thought, I, I, I thought there's no way they could change the title. I've made it so integral to the, the start of every possible chapter, so they, they couldn't change the title. So, they came up with the subtitle. I like quite like the subtitle they came up with The World the Day I Made. Um, but anyway, um, so. The book was now being printed uh, and I was explaining to my daughter, who we talked about earlier, um, who, who was 10 at the time. Uh, and I said, well, the books, I said, the books are sort of about the world you're going to inherit. It's going to be about what the world might look like based upon what we're doing today and where the, the derivative of what we can see today and the opportunities and challenges that poses to whether that be work or politics or privacy or, or anything that's uh, in our society. Uh, and then um, I did the maths and I worked out in 2062, she is my year to exactly to the age, uh, my age to the year. Yeah. Uh, so rather spooky coincidence that, yeah, it is. The world that she will inherit. She'll be exactly my age. It's the world that all our children will inherit. And it, the book 
the, the message of the book is really about encouraging people to think about that future. I think we don't really think enough about the future. There's this sort of technical determinism. We think the future is something that's fixed and it's going to happen to us. We're just going to have to adapt to it. And maybe you could ask people like myself to help understand what that future may look like, as opposed to realize that the future is actually entirely the product of the decisions we make. And there are, there are technologies that we'll invent and we can decide to use them in particular ways or not to use them in particular ways, use them to fight war or not to use them to fight war. We can use them to improve our political discourse or to hurt our political discourse. We can use them to make our lives more comfortable or we can use them to make only the very rich more comfortable. There are lots of choices we get to make um, and encouraging people to think about those choices um, and so that the future is the one that we want it to be, the one that um, profits all of our children. Tabi, Ian, I can sit for another four hours. In closing, any message that you'd like to leave our audience with today um, about robots, artificial intelligence, or anything else? Yeah, well, uh, people often ask me if, if I'm not a bit too pessimistic or, you know, am I optimistic as to what that future will be like? Um, and I have um, a mixed answer in the sense that I'm somewhat pessimistic in the short term. I think it's, it's a very bumpy few years. I mean, uh, the pandemic has only um, added to the, the, the bumpy road that we've been going down. We've already seen plenty of other bumps, whether that be the climate emergency, the increasing inequality we, we see within our societies, the more fractured um, political debates that we increasingly see, the, the divisions that we see opening up within our society. So we see some, some significant, some really wicked problems that face us. But equally, I'm, I'm actually ultimately very optimistic. I do believe that, you know, just like we live much better quality lives than our grandparents did, by embracing these technologies and using them in good ways, in fact, in fact there are only hope. We don't embrace these technologies, we're not going to deal with the climate emergency, we're not going to deal with, you know, we weren't going to deal with the, uh, the pandemic other than by inventing vaccines to get us out of, out of the hole. Um, we could put things on hold, but um, ultimately, uh, we do have to embrace technology for good. And so, um, ultimately, I'm actually a very optimistic person, and that we will continue the progress that we've seen in the last hundred years. That has, um, I'm not sure that we can continue to double life expectancy. I'm not sure the human body is able to do that. But we will um, ensure that fewer people live in poverty and that fewer people die unnecessary deaths at a young age. Um, and that, um, that we can lift all of the quality of lives of people around the planet. I think that's a, that's a wonderful message, Tabi. Honestly, I, let's end on, on positivity and hope that people such as yourself and, and your peers that you work with, um, you know, go forward and embrace the seriousness of everything that we're facing today. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, if, if any of our listeners want to contact you, where can they find you? Uh, you can type Toby Walsh into Google. I'm the first hit. <laughs> Probably the only hit for about five or six so many, pages. Many years ago, <laughs> back, back in the 80s, before the internet was, well, was back in the 90s, before the internet really took off, you could type Toby into Google and someone said to me, Toby, Toby, type Toby into Google and you're the first hit. <laughs> I'm, unfortunately, I'm no longer even on the first page for Toby, but I'm still, still the first hit for Toby Walsh. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Um, to our listeners, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to chatting to you in another two weeks time in Let's Talk Robotics.